Okay. Thanks everybody for joining us for our additional Q&A session. And thanks again to everybody who joined us for our webinar today. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you again, Mark. As I mentioned, thanks. it was awesome seeing it the second time and I was really able to take different nuggets that I uh, wasn't able to pick up on the first time. So we wanted to take this time to answer about four questions that we had remaining that we didn't have time to get to. So first question that we didn't get to is, why do you feel like most companies are not supportive of employees making mistakes? So, I mean, it's, it's a good question. Um, yeah. How do we, how do uh, the first part of it is, well, you know, how many, I mean, is it most companies? Is it too many companies? I mean, I, I almost, I mean, it probably is most, that's just a perception on my part. You know, I think that, that I think uh, people, uh, I think a lot of organizations do blame employees instead of being supportive. Mm -hmm. So I think we can look at, well, why do we blame? Um, you, know, like, you know, there's that punitive reaction to a mistake. Someone made a mistake, we must punish them. I'm like, well, that, it's not a must. I mean, it's, it's a choice. And I think it ends up being counterproductive. Right, so when we say if punishing is not supportive, um, I think there's there's one line of thinking perhaps. Well, I, I have to punish the mistakes, otherwise people are going to think it's okay to make mistakes. And I, I don't think that's really true. I mean, I think people feel bad when they make a mistake. You know, people are wanting to do a good job. So I think being punitive or getting upset at somebody for a mistake, I don't know really what that adds, it can get counterproductive where when people don't feel supported or if they feel punished, what's going to happen is they're going to get better at hiding and covering up mistakes. That's where it gets counterproductive, right? So I don't think the punishment of mistakes is a pathway to having fewer mistakes. We might have fewer reports, you know, a chart that's opposite of what I showed in the webinar of that Japanese hospital where they did such a great job of encouraging reports. There could be some organizations where that chart's going in the wrong direction because people learn to keep quiet, unfortunately. Right. So I think, you know, shifting beyond punitive is one thing. And then I'll credit um, Karen Ross, who's doing uh, our July webinar about kind leadership. She was really kind and helped me with my book of understanding and articulating the difference between nice and kind. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, an organization that says, OK, we're not going to be punitive anymore. I see some organizations that think they're being supportive. Maybe it's more supportive than the punitive route. But like a nice response might say, um, well, you know, Karen made a mistake. I'm not going to say anything because I don't want her to feel bad. Right. Then Karen might not be aware of the mistake or she might feel guilty or bad that she got away with a mistake if she knew about it. And like, that doesn't really lead to probably any, any sort of problem solving and mistake prevention. So I think, you know, a kind approach would be to, to, to call out the mistake um, and, and maybe reinforce if it needs, if it needs it. Uh, well, I, I, I know you didn't mean to do that. I mean, it was, it was a mistake right? by definition unintended. Um, you know, we try to provide some reassurance, but then I think beyond that, we've got to, when, when, when the time is right, go into problem solving and prevention mode, right. like kind is helpful. Kind is more action oriented. Um, you know, the kindest, most supportive thing would be 
to acknowledge the mistake and then move forward to prevent the mistake from happening again. Because again, people feel bad when they make mistakes. Um, people want to do right by their company. Um, so I, I, I think, so, so why are most people not supportive? That was the question though. So I think one is, you know, people kind of, they, they think blame is necessary or um, I, I had somebody point out to me, um, it's not that people think the um, punitive approach is helpful, but it deflects responsibility. Interesting. The leader might blame the employee because then it's not the leader's fault. It's the employee's fault. And, you know, I think a more supportive environment, you know, and this is kind of classic lean thinking, instead of blaming the person who was involved in, in the mistake, look at the, the process and the systems that made the mistake even possible to focus on mistake proofing instead of, let's say, yelling at someone and telling them to be more careful next time. Um, so why do people do this? They they might think, I don't. It could that maybe that's what was modeled to them by other leaders, and this cycle maybe just continues. And and when people do work in a really supportive environment, maybe they can then, if they go to another company, bring that supportive environment with them. Hopefully, they're working for somebody. You know, if they're not the CEO, who can really try to set the tone for the company? Maybe they can at least continue that cycle of uh, being supportive. And, you know, I think one, one other thing I would add, being supportive of somebody making a mistake doesn't mean, well, we're not, ex, uh, what's what's the right word? We're, we're, we're not diminishing the impact of the mistake, right? Mm-hmm. So we can acknowledge that it was a mistake. We can acknowledge that it had some negative impact. That said, let's learn from it. Let's improve so it doesn't happen again. I think that's the best supportive approach. Yeah, I can think of an example even lately at work is I was working on a project with Greg, of course, who's the CEO, which can be kind of intimidating to work closely with the CEO. Um, And it didn't quite go as we had had anticipated. And I was kind of kicking myself, you know, there's a couple mistakes made, wish I did that better. And afterwards, Greg didn't even say, hey, you know, he didn't even put it on me. It was, hey, how can we be better next time? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the things that we could have prepared differently. And it was just a learning opportunity. He's like, hey, it's just learning opportunity. We'll do better next time. And it was so cool to see. You know, of course he's modeled that, but working on this one-on-one relationship, I really got to see that in action. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. was such a better way to learn. And, you know, you know, the next time we did it, it was so much better with all of the, mm. the things that we learned from those little mistakes. So that's well, great to hear. I mean, thank, thank you for sharing that. That sounds like uh, a, a supportive response. And again, like that supportive response, it's, it's different than nice. So let's say somebody exactly. saying like, well, it's no big deal. It's okay. Right. And then end of conversation, uh, going back into what can we do differently in the future? I think that's the important part. Yeah, because nice doesn't help you prepare better or um, be better for the next time. Mm-hmm. So kind is definitely the way to go. Yeah. And I'll encourage everyone, please do um, come for Karen's webinar on July 11th. That's going to be really good. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, so we'll dive into the next question here. So why do you, based on your investigations, why do you feel like it is so difficult to understand as a human mm-hmm. that we make mistakes? And why do you feel like the Japanese culture seemingly 
uh, has a better understanding about it? That's a really good question. One, I, I don't feel really qualified to answer. Like this question of um, a generalization of Japanese versus, let's say, Toyota. I mean, I've I've visited Japan five times on different lean study tours. And, and one key takeaway for me was that not every company there is like Toyota, right? There are elements of Japanese society that influence Toyota in Japan. But Toyota, when you look at their culture as it's become a global company, I think there's there's a consistent, generally consistent corporate culture. Right. Um, again, not trying to paint them as perfect, but you know, there's stories that I've drawn out of people in the My Favorite Mistake podcast. They're and they're included in my book, you know, a story from Japan 1960s, Kentucky 1980s, when there was that same type of supportive, kind, constructive, action-oriented response right. to a mistake of a, what could have been described as human error, but it was really a system breakdown, right? And the Toyota leaders in those two different stories responded in a very consistent way. So part of me says that's not necessarily a Japanese dynamic. We could say it's a, a Toyota dynamic or tendency. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, we 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 can... We, we, we can, um, you know, cultivate this type of culture in different companies um, around the world. But, but back to the question of why is it so hard to understand that we make mistakes? Um, I see people say and post even on LinkedIn a lot, like on an individual level, it's one thing to say things like, um, we learn the most from our mistakes or failure can be the best teacher. Like, I think it's interesting that individually people may, believe that, or they may want to further that idea, or at least sharing it on LinkedIn. And then somehow organizations, which might be made up of people who share that belief, then maybe like the organization doesn't seem to um, have that same understanding for this idea of, you know, we're all human, uh, human error is going to happen. Therefore, like this is where mistake proofing comes in. Um, to to help protect us against times when we get fatigued, distracted. I mean, there, there's there are all kinds of different dynamics of why 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 human error occurs. But I think there's there's another piece where I, uh, what, what what I would recommend or what, what I don't want to see is when people say things like, "Well, it's human error. People are going to make mistakes. What can we do?" Well, like the answer to that question is not nothing, right? That's like, the, well, what can we do about it? Apparently nothing. Like, well, no, I mean, that that's the challenge, right? So that's why, like, you know, in my book, a lot of the focus is on reacting well to mistakes at the same time. There are certain mistakes that we should be working really intensely on trying to prevent. Right. And then recognizing because systems break down, if they're imperfect, people are still going to um, have mental lapses or, or slip up. As hard as we try to prevent mistakes, we then need to be prepared to react well and constructively when they do occur. But um, yeah, I mean, there's this. I mean, I you know, it's a question of business culture. How much I don't you know? Does the education system condition us to like? Well, if you didn't get a perfect score. 
that's shameful or, you know, I, maybe there's dynamics like that around grading. I'm not saying grading shouldn't exist, but, you know, I don't know. We just kind of, uh, depending on educational tracks that we're on sometimes or our upbringing, I'm not a psychologist anymore yeah. than I am an expert on Japanese culture. Um, but there's yeah, so many I mean, factors that go into it, I think is what you're saying, right? There's a lot of factors. Yeah. And I think when leaders, again, I think for better or for worse, people tend to follow the behaviors and, and, and the patterns that their leaders demonstrate. So I think that's where some of this perpetuates itself of like, yeah, we're an organization that tends to shoot the messenger. Well, that's going to keep happening until a new leader comes in and recognizes, okay, well, that that's not what we want our culture to be anymore. Or, you know, we're a culture that punishes people for mistakes, which is still, you know, kind of the predominant culture in healthcare, that's going to perpetuate itself until somebody at a leadership level says, okay, enough, we're going to try to change the culture. And that's the starting point of a, a difficult journey. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we'll jump to the next question here. So do you feel like there's a good way to prevent people with more experience from stepping on the ideas or inputs of people with less experience? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question. It is. That's a, that's a great question. Um, one thing, I mean, I'll, I'll cite Tim Clark again from Leader Factor. I mean, one thing he talks about in terms of, he'll frame it sometimes as what a CEO can do to um, help encourage psychological safety. And this, this idea might apply to somebody who's like the most senior person in a team or in the room. So his recommendation, and I think Greg Jacobson as our CEO tries to practice this, is, you know, we're like in a discussion or if you're brainstorming or if you're problem solving, maybe the CEO should speak last. Because people might, I'm not saying this would be true at Kinexus, but... but you know, in other organizations, like once the CEO or the most senior person speaks, if there's not psychological safety at levels where, where people feel safe disagreeing or challenging the boss, people may just lock in on like, well, okay, well, nope, you know, the CEO, the most senior person has spoken. So there we have it. Um, I think being, so what can we do to prevent stepping on ideas or input? I think some of it is having that situational awareness of being the senior person or the most experienced person of um, realizing, okay, maybe better to hold back, right? And, and, and I think of times when we do our internal lean and learn sessions and I'm, I'm there and I'm part of it. And let's say, you know, Linda or Stephanie or someone is facilitating and they'll ask a question. Well, it wouldn't help if I jump in and blurt out <laughs> an answer when the point is to help others who are newer to lean or continuous improvement to let them learn and to give them practice articulating an answer to um to questions i try to be mindful of that and hold back and not be like oh like a a, a show off of i know the answer well i've been doing this longer right so hold back let others go first um and, and, and it may slip up sometimes, but that's my intent anyway. <laughs> I think that's great actual advice. I think that's kind of the only thing to do is having that awareness as a executive or a leader to kind of hold back. I like that example. Yeah. And, 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 and peer to peer or as colleagues, you might have an opportunity to maybe, you know, um, provide some coaching 
to somebody. Right. You know, you'd say that that could be a kind approach back to nice versus kind of like, you know, kind, I think involves, you know, sometimes bringing up an uncomfortable notion and saying, well, I'm trying to be helpful. You might not be aware that when you're jumping in and answering the questions, you're not giving others the chance to speak. You know, someone might say, oh gosh, I didn't realize. Right. So, right. I mean, I think you can try to coach or bring that up um, and try to help someone out that way. The difference between nice and kind that keeps the example that keeps jumping into my head that I heard recently was, you know, you have something in your teeth, right? We all <laughs> add a salad or something. The nice thing is to ignore it. This right. is awkward. The kind thing is to say, hey, you have a little something in your teeth, right? I know me personally, I'd much rather somebody tell me and spare me the <laughs> right. further embarrassment. So yeah, right. Yeah. And to, you know, maybe pull someone aside or, you know, rather blurting it out in front right. of everybody. And of course, if everybody can see it, then the embarrassment's right. already happened. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So our last question here is, how can we create a safe space where it doesn't become a complaining session in every meeting because it is such a safe mm-hmm. place? That is that is a really interesting question. So even like in the context, we can think of it in terms of psychological safety, maybe, or even just around continuous improvement. I have seen this happen where a leader, like you're trying to start kicking off Kaizen activity and working toward this culture of continuous improvement. And leaders, or if I'm helping coach as an outside consultant, you ask people to speak up and there might be this flood of like, oh, thank goodness you're finally asking. Right. <laughs> I've got this list of, I wasn't afraid to speak up, but I didn't think anybody- I'd have cared. a forum to do it. Yeah. yeah, I didn't have a forum. So it might be more the futility factor versus fear mm-hmm. factor. But, um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes it may- seem like complaints and and i think you still you have to reward the complaining in the sense of i'm not saying throw a candy bar to them or give them 20 dollars but turn that complaint into um some sort of improvement or action right so framing that into an opportunity so if if someone's quote unquote complaining we could try to reframe that as they're pointing out a frustration. Right. Thank you for that. Now let's talk about what can we constructively do about it. Right. You know, so I think if people are told, hey, stop it, you're you're just moaning and complaining, well, then they might feel then the futility factor is kicking in and people are like, all right, well, or I'm being punished, or either way, like people say, okay, fine. I won't speak up then. I think you've got to try to turn it into something constructive. And if you're not taking action, people might bring it up a second time. And now you know somebody might say, oh, gosh, no, they're really going on and on about it. Well, like you've got to address it in one way or another. And then, you know, if not, they may stop complaining. Like there, there's some sort of expression. Um, gosh, what is it like? You'd rather have. Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know if you've heard an expression. Maybe you can bail me out on this. But it's something like um, you'd rather hear people complaining because at least you know they care. It's like when a team suddenly goes silent, that might be the biggest problem of all. Is that ringing a bell? I'm making... It's ringing a bell. Yeah. I, I mean, it completely resonates with me. I don't know if I've heard that uh, quote directly or who who said it, but I think that's a great point. 
Yeah. So, so back to the question of how do we create a safe space? Um, so, I mean, being such a safe space that people complain on one level, that's a positive. So then again, I think if you turn the complaint into something constructive, they'll move forward. Now there, there are situations where let's say people are pointing out problems that are out of our control that we are not able to take action on that. That's something to address differently. You know, um, I mean, you know, sometimes people will say, um, like a complaint, a real complaint might be, um, parking lots, not big enough, not enough parking spaces. We should build a new garage. Like, well, that might not be something a local department has any influence over. So, I mean, maybe as a leader, you have choices, like I'm going to pass that concern along to the right level that can take action on it. Or it could be a matter of trying to close the loop and informing people of, well, um, they are starting to build a new garage next month. That doesn't solve the problem right away. But I think you can acknowledge the problem, the frustration it's being worked on as opposed to saying, hey, stop complaining about that. Right. You know, or or try to talk about other countermeasures to avoid having the drive around circling and looking for parking other than telling people show up an hour early, you know, right. or something that they might, you know, that might not be a, a great countermeasure. So, I mean, I think, I mean, sometimes easier said than done, but I would still, I think, try to reframe complaints as the starting point for improvement. Yeah, I, I feel like your answer is kind of ringing that the habit loop bell for me. Mm. I don't know. Any of you listening have been listening to our habit loop series, but this is something Greg and I have been working on for about a year now. So, you know, you talk about closing the loop. I think that's so important because more times than not, when I'm hearing from customers, it's not that they're hearing too many ideas. It's that people aren't speaking up enough. And some of the time it's because there hasn't been that proper loop or kind of reward, like you mentioned, even if it's not a possibility, there needs to be that acknowledgement of, hey, I hear you. And this is either why it can't happen or, you know, this is what is the future plan, something that makes you feel heard where you're going to continue to hopefully uh, speak up and to voice, you know, concerns or improvements. So um, I think that that feedback loop is just so important. And Mm -hmm. In closing that and closing that loop, really. And and I think there's a different habit loop to develop when ideas do start coming in. Sometimes that's a problem of, oh, we have too many ideas. Then uh, we, we don't have enough time to work on all of them right away. Right. So there could be some different habits to get into in terms of uh, prioritizing and communicating and giving visibility to people about, look, we hear you and we're going to work on all of these, but we can only work on so many at a time. Right. And I think that or, visibility, yeah, so yeah, yeah, the visibility or building the habit around um, consciously creating time to work on improvement, right? right? So it's back to the 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 one uh, mindset of well, it's human error. What can we do? Well, right. go figure out what to do. And when people say we don't have time to improve, what can we do? Well, let, let's let's explore that. Let's figure out what we can do to free up time. Yeah, I feel like some of our most successful customers have that dedicated huddle time, whether it's 15, 30 minutes once a week or however often. And they have that opportunity, like you mentioned, to 
share that visibility. You know, you could talk through ideas. People can see where their idea is in the process. If it's being worked on, you know, where is it? So I feel like that gives people um, that reassurance that they're being heard and that they don't have to complain about the same thing three times, right? They can see where it is in the process, which is so important in a graphic culture. Yeah, because maybe final point I'll make here, you the manager might not like hearing it three times. The employee also might not like saying it three times. Right. right. That's a great point. <laughs> so hopefully, you know, what we covered here, I, and, and if people have not watched or listened to uh, the three habits webinars that you and Greg did, I hope people will go find those either uh, in the podcast feed, um, in the YouTube channel, or they can go search um, kinexus.com slash webinars and look at the the on-demand um, library uh, of on-demand link uh, for the webinar. So, okay, I'm talked out after doing the thank presentation. You the, and then thank you for the shout out. <laughs> we'll let you go now. Um, thanks again and have a great week, Mark. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Morgan. Thanks for your prep and hosting today. And thanks to everyone for being here and for all the great questions. I appreciate it.